Welcome to How My Country Works with your host, Stephen O'Shea, the podcast that rummages around the hoarder's basement of the global political system and pulls out the insightful gems hidden way at the back. Each episode, we'll be working alphabetically through different countries' politics so you can show off to your friends and maybe gain a slightly better understanding of just how those countries work. Next up, on the southwest coast of Africa, with a population of 33 million, and functioning as a presidential democracy, is Angola. In September 2017, the people of Angola welcomed their first new president in 38 years. Since establishing his grip on power as Angola's colonial invaders left in the 1970s, Jose Eduardo dos Santos has ruled the African nation longer than this correspondent has been alive. However, in 2017, the president stood down and his defense minister, João Lorenco, stepped up to the top job. So far, he has had mixed success in rooting out corruption, including from the previous president's children and restarting the struggling economy. But how did this oil-rich country end up here? In order to dive a little bit deeper into this and the broader setup of Angola, I'm joined on the show by Professor Justin Pierce of Sussex University and author of Political Identity and Conflict in Central Angola, 1975-2002. to Justin, welcome to the show. Now, many people may or may not know that Angola was actually colonized by the Portuguese, and so that's actually the official language of the country. But I was hoping you could shed a bit of light on how the Portuguese colonization of Angola actually shapes the country more broadly, as it is a significant amount of time, even when compared to other colonies. You know, I think, um, first of all, to understand the Portuguese Portuguese colonization of, of Angola, there's almost a contradiction, the fact that, yes, it went on for a very long time in that, um, you know, the Portuguese were first establishing contact uh, with people in Angola as early as the 15th century. Wow. All the way back then? So that there's this very, very long Portuguese presence along, along the coastal regions of, of Angola in particular. On the other hand, you know, the, if you think the golden age of Portugal, was really the the 15th and 16th centuries. By the time that the other European powers got around to carving up Africa, which is in the 1880s, Portugal by that time was really past its prime. It was it, it was a, it was a poor European nation without the resources to to put into colonization. So that while on the one hand you had this very early colonization of the coast, there are places in the east of Angola which didn't really see Portuguese colonization until well in, into the 20th century. And I think it's that um, those very different experiences of colonization in different parts of Angola are one of the keys to, to understanding the history. So it wasn't the same all the way through the whole country then? Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? In other words, the um, systems of class-based or regional-based inequality that we can see in a place like Angola today are traceable to those uneven patterns of ex- of extraction, which happened um, um, happened under colonization. So Luanda developed on the coast, and it developed as a city that was primarily for exporting slaves from Angola to the Americas. An estimated five million slaves. A large part of the Afro-Brazilian population, for example, is descended from enslaved people from uh, fr- from Angola. Wow, I had no idea. 
Is this kind of differentiation of the regions still felt today then? I think the elite status of this class that developed in, in Luanda, which made its money out of enslaving other Angolans, I think that has led ultimately to a lot of the mutual suspicions between, between, between the different regions of Angola. Yeah, of course. Why, but why was it that Portugal held on to its empire for so long then? You know, because the dictatorial regime in Portugal, which was there from the 1920s until the 1970s, um, the idea of empire was very, very important to them, you know, just as a symbol of the prestige of Portugal. It was, you know, the only claim of a, of a small European nation to, to, uh, to greatness on the, um, on, um, on the international stage. Right, of course. So... How how did they maintain their presence there as such a middling European nation? From you know from the nineteen forties nineteen fifties, you have Portugal effectively exporting its surplus people to to Angola because you know here you have a European country which didn't really have an industrial revolution. Um, its population is growing; it has people it needs to do something with, so it kind of exports them to the colonies. Wow! It just ships them off. But then how is Portugal eventually forced to leave in the end? You know, from the 1960s onwards, anti-colonial armed resistance started in 1961. Throughout the 1960s, Portugal was committing more and more troops and resources to fighting um, a war in Angola and its other colonies. I mean, a war which looked completely futile. So that, you know, by the, by the early 70s, it really, it really looked like a stalemate. And it was dissatisfaction among Portuguese military officers that led to the coup d'etat in Portugal in 1974, which ushered in a a new government that was prepared to um, concede independence to uh, to, uh, to the colonies. And then they pretty much just leave, right? Like there's no real plan of action. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, I mean, the, the new regime that, t- that, that, that took power in Lisbon from 1974 onwards, you know, they saw themselves as the progressive forces within Portuguese society. And they also saw themselves as automatically being on the side of the colonized. They really wanted to make a clean break with the past. They saw the legacy of the empire as really being the business of the old regime. You know, they just wanted to wash their hands of it and get rid of it. Yeah. And I think in the process, um, kind of absolve themselves a lot of, res- of a lot of responsibility for managing that transition. You know, the attitude was, this isn't our problem. It was a problem of the old regime that's, that's, no, um, that's no longer there. Um, so now all we have to do is hand it over to, to, um, to the Angolans and let the, let the Angolans take it from there. But then the country descends into civil war, sadly, right? Because um, as you, because you had these various anti-colonial movements in different parts of Angola, you know, Angola, like socially, was a deeply divided society. You know, you had groups, groups of people in Angola whose historical experience was, was very different. For example, people in, in the center of Angola whose communities had been subjected to enslavement in the past were unlikely to have much sympathy with people in Luanda who they saw as the descendants of the slave traders. And so, you know, it was historical, historical mistrust like that. So, you know, what, what you have by the time 
the Portuguese are getting ready to leave in 1974, is three movements. Um, the MPLA based mostly in and around Luanda. Um, the, the FNLA um, based in the far north along, along the Congo border and mostly operating out of um, the then Zaire, which today is, um, is DR Congo. And then you have, um, you, um, you, uh, you have UNITA mobilizing in the central highlands. So let's get this straight. The three main groups fighting for supremacy in the 1970s are the MPLA around the capital Luanda, the FNLA based in the north, and UNITA in the center. And how do these groups function together at the beginning? With the Portuguese leaving, it became really a zero-sum game. The, you know, the Portuguese started with withdrawing, withdrawing their forces from about June of 1975, um, which is what, four or five months before, before independence. Um, the rival movements then effectively establish administration as the Portuguese leave. In Luanda itself, the Portuguese were quite sympathetic to the, um, um, to the MPLA. So they started ceding effective control of Luanda to, to the MPLA quite early on. Whereas in other parts of the country, UNITA or the FMLA would, would, uh, would, would move in. And, you know, effectively establish sovereign control. So that, you know, you had a country that was territorially divided before, before it ever, um, ever became in de- um, independent. And this is just made worse by the Cold War, isn't it? Particularly the concerns of South Africa during apartheid, which is fiercely anti-communist and is very worried about the MPLA, which seems to be a left-leaning regime, getting, um, getting into power. So, you know, the MPLA feels itself to be surrounded. It calls on, on Cuba for help. But, you know, this just kind of further fuels the fears of South Africa and the United States. The fact, the fact that now Cu- Cuba has taken up the cause of the MPLA, South Africa and the US um, see that as all the more reason to carry, carry on backing the movements which are opposed to the MPLA. So, you know, while the Civil War starts with fractures within Angolan society, you know, I think that there's a possibility that an amicable arrangement could have happened, but for the fact that you have rival Cold War, um, co- uh, co- uh, Cold War interests. So then this bloody civil war rages until 2002. Why does it go on for so long? It was always more, in Angola in particular, it was always more than just about the Cold War. And simply the ending of the Cold War and the withdrawal of foreign mil- military support was not necessarily going to translate easily into, into peace in Angola. I mean, particularly because um, you still had this very, very deep mistrust between, between UNITA and the MPLA. The FN, FNLA is now out of the picture. It was defeated by the MPLA back in 1975. So, you know, by, by 1990, the players are UNITA and the MPLA. That mistrust between them has only been deepened further um, over over the years. How does it eventually come to an end? So that you know, in in the late nineties, early two thousands, you have this massive counterinsurgency operation in which hundreds of thousands of people are are, um, are displaced in the areas held um, held by UNITA. One by one, the towns still held by UNITA are um, are recaptured, and eventually, in February two thousand and two. Um, the Angolan armed forces tracked down Jonas Savimbi in the bush in 
um, in eastern Angola shoot him dead. The remaining leaders of UNITA realize that it's probably best to accept peace on the government's terms than to try and carry on fighting. So despite all of this turmoil, Dos Santos is actually in power for all of this time. Can you tell us a little bit more about him? Interesting character. Nobody probably would have expected him to become president. He was foreign minister under the presidency of Agostinho Neto, which lasted from 1975 until Neto died suddenly in um, in 1979. You know, he'd never he'd never been a pro- a very prominent political leader. He was um, you know a loyal a loyal party member. He'd he'd been in exile. He was an engineer by training. Uh, so you know, really a loyal a loyal servant of the party rather rather than a visionary leader. Anyway, it is quite extraordinary. Whenever you hear Dos Santos speak, he's not impressive or inspirational in any in in any way at all. Wow, really? But you know, he's clearly a very, very skilled sort of backroom, backroom political operator. Had the trust of the military, which was obviously crucial in in a situation of war. You know, I think he benefited by, you know, having having got into power because the MPLA was quite literally under siege with the threat of invasion from, from South Africa. Through through uh, through all those years, um, that was a good reason to kind of impose revolutionary discipline through the party, so that any idea of a change of a change of leadership really, really, really was out of the question. So it's more because of this constant war footing. Was there anything else that helped him maintain power? It's the area of economic globalization. Angola is becoming more and more important as um, as an export of oil. You know, particularly after what the the war in in Kuwait in 1991, the West starts trying to look away from the Middle East for for uh, for, uh, for oil. So you know, oil off the western coast of Africa becomes more and more strategically important. That makes a lot of sense. But given all of that oil and military control. How is it that he's no longer in command of the country? Yeah. You know, I think the, the first signs of trouble started with the, the crash in 2008. Um, Angola managed to bounce back after that. The IMF back then warned Angola to diversify its economy from, away from oil. Uh, they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't do so. And, you know, it's it just continued to be this path of you know, really a single, econ- a single commodity economy 2014 obviously there was there was a real crash in the oil prices and that that had really really disastrous consequences for for for, uh, for angola in the last few years it was quite clear that he was going abroad for cancer cancer treatment though this was never never spoken about officially cancer wow so it all kind of finally caught up with him then yeah it was against that backdrop that the santos resigned in in 2017 so who does he end up actually handing over to? He handed over in the end to João Lourenço. Well, I mean, Lourenço is a military man. And I mean, to keep in power in Angola, you need the trust of the security services. Lourenço also had the confidence of the MPLA as a party. You know, I think certainly elements in the MPLA had been getting increasingly angry and frustrated with the way the Santos was running the country, kind of bypassing the party. And sort of running the country as his own as his own private business, but you know nobody in the MPLA could really say anything about that. 
So, you know, I think there was relief within the MPLA when Lorenzo became president. De Santos clearly felt that Lorenzo could be trusted to look after or to preserve the Dos Santos grip on the economy. You know, I think Dos Santos's logic probably was um, Lorenzo owes me one for making him my successor. So Lorenzo becomes the president and leader of the MPLA. And although this was the only legal political party until 1992, it's now a multi-party system with regular elections. The leader of the largest party then ascends to the presidency, which is now occupied by Lorenzo. So Lorenzo becomes president. How has he governed versus De Santos? Lorenzo managed to consolidate goodwill very quickly by moving rapidly against um, the beneficiaries of the De Santos regime. In particular, his daughter Isabel um, and his son Jose Filomeno. So, you know, I think initially Lorenzo sought goodwill by distancing himself from, um, from his predecessor and um, and demonstrating that he would um, that he he would prosecute the the abuses of the past. However, that could only last so long. In that, you know, the the discontentment that was seen under the Dosantos regime. Yes, it was about Dosantos himself and the fact that he'd been around for so long and he was hideously corrupt. But there were also more bread and butter issues, mostly around employment and the cost of living, which. Lorenzo hasn't managed to address. And yeah, this is where the problem comes in of Lorenzo having stepped into power in the midst of a profound economic crisis, which which has only got worse. You know, the oil economy obviously took a further knock um, with the onset of the pandemic a year ago. So that really, Lorenzo really now looks like his um, legitimacy supplies have drained, have drained pretty much to um, to empty. There were quite large protests in, in Luanda against, against his government um, on Independence Day, the 11th of November last year. So yes, Lorenzo, a president who I think started quite skillfully and you know, took, took a few necessary steps, but also politically expedient steps in righting some of the wrongs of the past. But you know, it's certainly we could, certainly can't say that Lorenzo's regime is free from corruption itself. And he also faces a huge challenge in terms of um, employment and standards of living, which he's um, barely, started, um, barely started to address. Of course. Well, I think that's actually done a great job at bringing us up to date in terms of where we are now. But as you might know, we try and finish every episode by asking our guests what a unique holiday or festival or event from each particular country is. Can you provide us the one for Angola? I mean, the first one I'd think of would be Carnival, which is obviously not unique, but, you know, it's something that's um, celebrated in, in a lot of countries with, with Catholic heritage, um, particularly, um, particularly in Latin America. Carnival is a much bigger thing in Angola than it is anywhere else in Africa, certainly. You know, I think it's where you see the... Brazilian cultural connection uh, coming coming out quite strongly. You know, partly because Angolans will look at Brazilian television and, and see how Carnival is celebrated there. But you know, also the fact that there are Angolan dances which are associated with Carnival, which certainly predate the arrival of television. And you know, it's it's also very likely that um, the dance forms that we see as Brazilian 
have their have their roots in Africa and probably and probably in Angola. So you know, I, th I think carnival kind of embodies a sort of cultural exchange between Brazil and Angola, which is which um, which has gone both ways. Wow, that's amazing! I had no idea that carnival was so big in Angola, but of course, it makes so much sense given the Portuguese influence in Brazil as well. Wow, I think that's a perfect place to leave the show. Thanks so much to my guest, Justin Pierce. Join us next time, where we'll be exploring the small Caribbean country of Antigua and Barbuda. As always, please do rate us on your podcast app and recommend us to any of your friends that have a hankering for political knowledge. Follow us on Instagram at HowMyCountryWorks for extra insights and facts. And there you can message us around anything else you'd like to know about the show or any other country. See you next time. And remember, keep asking how my country works.